0: Hi folks, Steve Urban here, founder and CEO at recruiting firm, RiderFlex. If you enjoyed today's guest interview, please give it a like and be sure to subscribe to the RiderFlex podcast. And now a quick word from our sponsor.
1: Try the number one marketing platform for small business. Everything you need from design to marketing to CRM. Learn more at marketing360.com. Marketing 360, fuel your brand. Try the number one marketing platform for small business. Everything you need from design to marketing to CRM. Learn more at marketing360.com. Marketing 360, fuel your brand.
0: Mark Watson on the Rider Flex podcast. Man, look at that. Look at that nice hair you got at your age. I mean, how? What, that looks like you're, you're in your 20s. How do you do that?
1: You know, it's funny you say that. I, I think my hairstyle is back to where I was a teenager when we were all in COVID lockdown and couldn't go get our haircut, it kind of got longer. And my wife said, you know, I, I like it that way. And, and her friends told me they liked it that way too. So I just kind of kept it longer, I, like it. I like <laughs> but, it. Yeah. but, but I went, I'm heading to the, I'm headed to get my haircut next week.
0: <laughs> oh, okay. It looks good, man. I like it. I like it. Well, thanks for being on the show. Impressive career, obviously. I want to get into that but first, tell me about Mark Watson growing up, parents, childhood, siblings give us a little background if you don't mind.
1: Yeah I grew up uh, I grew up in Texas mainly in in San Antonio in Houston okay and, and we lived we lived at the time in probably the the most western suburb of Houston and it was on the Buffalo bio, but it was a lot farther west of the Buffalo bio than where the Battle of San Jacinto took place when General Sam Houston won the independence of Texas, Mm. Uh, but same body of water, and we used to go out and ride our bikes back there after school every day and go hunting, and there wasn't a lot of fishing to do, but there was a little bit of It, it was one of those great backyards where you got to grow up on your bicycle hanging out with your friends. It was nice. a lot of fun. Nice.
0: What'd your folks do?
1: Well, uh, my dad was not, was still still is, but but back then what was a, a serial entrepreneur, sadly, he and my mother divorced when my sisters and I were, were very young and so mm-hmm. he stayed in San Antonio and my my uh, my mother, uh, moved the three of us to Houston, where her parents lived. I and see. so I, I kind of grew up bouncing back and forth uh, between between the two places. I got gotcha. you. And uh, your dad did
0: he start and sell businesses, flip businesses, still owns businesses now? and
1: what what kind of stuff did he buy or did he start? So he he started a number of financial services businesses, mainly, uh, insurance brokers and insurance companies oh that ties into your background a little bit okay. yeah a, yeah a, yeah a little bit we'll talk more about that in a little bit his okay. father was a, was also an entrepreneur he was a mortgage banker and my mother's father was a wildcatter in west texas oh cool so uh, so i grew up with a bunch of entrepreneurs uh as role models it's kind of fun
0: uh that sounds fun how about your mom what did she do besides raise the the three kids did she have a profession as well
1: no that was that was her profession looking <laughs> looking at looking after us i mean she 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 worked on the side a little bit but mainly her you know her time was was raising raising her her aspiring children of which I'm just following in the footsteps of my sisters uh your dad's still alive how about your mom yep she is too she just turned 80 and was on a cruise in the Caribbean for her 80th birthday. So I I think I like, she said she had fun and she sure sounded like it. That's pretty cool. Since
0: they divorced young, did they both remarry or no? Uh,
1: Yes, yes, yes. We'll leave it
0: at that. Okay. Sounds good. All right. And what kind of teenager were you? Were you straight A's? Were you like, okay, I'm at the library. I'm, I'm, a, I'm at church every Sunday or were,
1: were, were you, were you a little wild? Where, where was Mark in there? I was at church on Sundays, but uh, I might've had a little fun before I got the church on Sunday. <laughs> um, I, I, I was a hockey player growing up. Oh, I didn't went know to that. a, a Jesuit, a Jesuit prep school. Um, and if you've, no, any kids that went to Jesuit prep schools, we all tended to be a little extreme, uh, both in, in terms of academics, uh, sports, and extracurricular activities. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, any uh, were you ever arrested in there
0: anywhere? Any, any like, call, call for dad from the sheriff's office? Anything fun?
1: Um, I have no police record, and I'll leave it <laughs> at that. <laughs> okay, I, I, I had, you know, I, I had fun growing up. And in, in addition to playing sports and going to school, I also had a job almost every year I was in high school. So mm. I didn't really have that much free time. And, and actually, I had to work really hard uh, to manage my time.
0: Gotcha. And it sounds like you were an outdoor, sounds like there was some hunting, some land. Are you still, do you live on some acreage now? Do you have a ranch farm and do you do some hunting still? Uh,
1: My family has, we have a, we have a ranch in the Texas Hill Country. And uh, actually my, my son is, is back in Texas for spring break. And as soon as we finish this podcast, he and I are headed out to the ranch nice okay very good you got some atvs and horses and stuff what else you got out there uh we got a little bit of everything it's it it's a fun place to be it's kind of like it it's it's more like glamping than anything else but it's we got some (laughs) african safari tents out there we got an airstream got a running river yeah okay Oh, uh, I
0: didn't tell. Okay. I didn't tell you if you're a guest on the rider flex podcast, that that reserves a, a spot for me to come bring my camper down and hang out for a few
1: days. I'll, I'll send you a pin drop
0: <laughs> and married uh, kids. Uh, how about your own family? What's going on? You said you had a, you got a son in on spring break. So now you got one boy, what else you got going on there? We, he's
1: got two big sisters and uh, one is in college. The other's headed there in a few months. And uh, my wife and I have been married for 23 years. Oh, congratulations. All right. Very good. Yeah. Is, she, is she hanging out with you today
0: or, or what's she doing?
1: Uh, no, she's doing her job today. So she, uh, oh. she's involved in a, in, a, in a couple of philanthropies uh, uh-huh. here in Texas. And so she's, that's what she's been doing all day today. Okay,
0: I like that office. And I know you got the blurred uh, background going on on Zoom, but I can tell you're in a nice library type office <laughs> here. That's good. <laughs>
1: yeah, that's true. I'm in my I'm in my little my little man cave. <laughs> I like it, man.
0: You do have, you definitely have the Texas accent going on too. I bet that goes over real well when you're back in New York doing you. Do you find yourself switching speeds? By the way, as soon as you land in New York, do you pick it up a few notches and then slow down when you come back?
1: Yes, I, I talk a lot <laughs> faster. The accent goes away. And, and that was having worked in New York for a long time when I was younger and being made fun of for my Texas. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah. So you went,
0: to, you went to SMU first, right? Finance, I think. Is that right? Yep. Okay.
1: Yeah. I actually, I actually went to Notre Dame my freshman year. Oh. And uh, thought I made straight A's before I left, by the way. But uh, I, thought I, I thought I would walk on to the Notre Dame hockey team and what I discovered was that the best hockey player in Texas was not as good as the worst <laughs> hockey player in Minnesota. If uh, <laughs> I can just kind of paint that picture of extremes. And so, <laughs> yeah, and I, so I you're like,
0: oh, your dreams are crushed. You're like, oh, my God. Okay. Yeah. And then you're like, this sucks. I'm not going to hang out here. I'm going to go back to Texas and go to school.
1: Yeah. It was more complicated than that. But I, let's just say that when I got to SMU, I had a lot more fun.
0: I'll never forget. Uh, my kid was uh, my youngest boy. My youngest son was a quarterback in high school and we a small town in Colorado. And, uh, you know, he was a star athlete here in town, very small town. Right. And we, we thought he was all that until he got up to division three football in college. And, uh, I watched the first couple of days of tryouts and I was like, Oh shit. Okay. Yeah. He has no chance. <laughs> yeah.
1: You know, uh, it's, it, it's funny. I, when I was, when I was in high school, my classmates were really smart, hmm. and and then I got to college, both at Notre Dame and SMU, and I, it was pretty easy for me to hold my own. Okay. And then I got to law school. Yeah. And, and it was like, oh my! And my eldest child just transferred to NYU, and. She was working on a paper last night and asking me to help her a little bit. And, and I said, what do you think? She goes, man, this is a whole different ballgame than where I was before. I said, well, <laughs> you wanted to go? And she's like, no. So she's enjoying it, right? But she's really had to dial it up uh, in intellectually. And so it's been, it has was fun to, to kind of help her last night
0: did you want to be a lawyer? Did you want to practice law or you
1: thought, no, I'll just be good to have the degree. What was the plan there? Oh, for sure. The latter. I, I, don't, I, you know, some people are cut out to be lawyers and a lot of the lawyers that have advised me over the years, they're just amazing. And they're what, I think what makes them so amazing is their passion for the law. And I always had a passion for building businesses, Okay, but I thought that having a I, I, well, first of all, my undergraduate degree was in finance yeah. and most of my professors at SMU also taught MBA classes. And so I kind of felt like I was leaving there with an MBA okay. In hindsight, having spent a lot of time at the Harvard business school, that might not have been true, but at the time it seemed like it. Mm. And so I thought, well, look, I already have some fundamental, fundamental understanding of business and finance but i noticed all the people that i was working with in the summer i worked for an energy company in the summer because i wanted to go in the oil business like my my grandfather and i realized that almost all the executives at this company had law degrees because you know the the energy industry like most industries are highly regulated and so having some understanding of the legal framework that you're operating in really makes sense and Mm -hmm. you know fast forward 10 20 years later when i was building my business i there you know seldom if ever did i make a decision without talking to my cfo or my general counsel yep. because every decision you make has a legal consequence and mm-hmm. so it just seemed like a really good idea now what i didn't realize is that you don't learn critical thinking in in a real way in law school you learn it in an abstract or theoretical way, mm. and and so you actually have to get out and practice for a few years, which I did before you can really get the benefit of your legal training. And I, I remember when I was in law school, I, th- this is when I knew it was time to leave. Although I did graduate, um, it I was in a I was in a business class, and the professor I, I don't even remember the subject. I don't remember exactly the issue we were discussing, but I. I felt the need to put my hand up. And, you know, you always put your hand up in the classroom at your peril because you presume everybody around you has a better answer. (laughs) And I said, well, professor, that's wrong. And he goes, what do you mean that's wrong? He goes in the real, I said, in the real world, we would never do it that way. And he said, Mr. Watson, this is not the real world. This is the University of Texas School of Law. We only deal in theory. And the sooner you figure out, the better. And I still had a year and a half of classes to go. Wow. And wow, That's true. Yeah, true. So when you get out, you get your law
0: degree, you immediately, though, go into a finance role, a business role.
1: Is that what happened? No, no. I went to New York City and practiced law. Oh, oh, you did? Uh, Okay. Okay. Yeah. So I look. My plan was to go into investment banking, but the crash of '87 happened. Ah. So the job, the job that I had been offered on Wall Street, went away, along with everyone else's. Mm -hmm. And by the way, true, the the same was true of corporate finance jobs in the big law firms. So, Mm -hmm. uh, you you asked me about my, my father earlier. And so in between college and law school, I went to work for my father that summer. I see. And I actually went to work for his CFO because the CFO was in charge of buying reinsurance for the insurance company. They'd just acquired, by the way, that's just the insurance of insurance companies. Okay. And it's the way they transfer, transfer risk off their balance sheet. And I thought, well, okay. You know, I kind of understand that by the way, that might've been an illusion in my mind to make me feel good. And, you know, you know how like the, the line out in, in Silicon Valley is fake it till you make it. Well, so I show up in, in New York city and I've got my finance degree. I sort of understand business. I sort of understand the insurance business. I sort of understand reinsurance, but not the reinsurance business. And so I went and interviewed with all these law firms all a handful of them that had a reinsurance practice. Cause I was trying to figure out, you know, how to differentiate myself from, from my classmates who took academics more seriously than I did. And, and so that was kind of how I got my, my foot in the door and what I, but but here's the funny part. Once I'd been practicing for about a year, I realized that I understood what was going on more than the lawyers around me because of my business background and my financial background. And because I had, for a fleeting moment in time, worked in an insurance business. And, of course, I grew up listening to all this at the dinner table, and, and I, I didn't appreciate it when I was younger. But in hindsight, I realized that I had much more of a, of a head start on, on mm. a lot of my peers just because of my background. And so it really why helped me a lot. Why didn't you work for your dad? Why go to New York? Why not just take
0: over and, and work in your dad's enterprise? Well, I,
1: no, one made the, no one made the offer. And, uh, <laughs> were, and you, I, were you and your dad close back then, or was there a little riff or what was what was going well, on? Let's let's just say that two strong willed people you should sometimes stay at arm's length. <laughs> uh And so fast forward, I'd been in New York a few years, and I called him on his birthday, and he goes, "You know, you keep telling me I should take my company public," and I said, "Yes, sir." And he goes, "And you keep telling me that you're the guy to help me do it," and I said, "Yes, sir." And he goes, "Okay, I'm going to do it. So why don't you?" come back to Texas and I said no no man I'm very happy up here in New York and and you know I, I had a girlfriend and by okay. the way he and he didn't like my girlfriend so I think that might have had something to do with it. Okay. But, so you never uh, so
0: you didn't so you didn't do it. You didn't come help him take No it I did. I did. Was that was that Titan
1: Holdings? I, that was Titan Holdings. Yeah. So I I see. Came, I see. Yeah. So he's the other Mark Watson. I'm Mark Watson the <laughs> 3rd. He's Mark Watson Jr. <laughs> and uh, so I did. I came home and and I helped him take his company public, okay. and then, and through a series through a series of acquisitions, we 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 really, gosh, we grew the company almost tenfold over a, a six year period. Nice. And and then we sold it um, to another larger uh, insurance group um, in uh, in the mid nineties. You didn't sell or it like, to Argo, not not to Argo. No, no, no. Yeah, no, completely separate. We sold it to a company that was called SF and G.
0: Okay, which was then right.
1: acquired by a company called St. Paul, which was then acquired by Travelers. <laughs>
0: uh, so ah, okay. that, that's,
1: called, that's called Business Pac-Man.
0: <laughs> so I see. Sorry. Right. So when you exit there, uh, your dad retires after that. He's done. That's right. Retires. Okay. And, and what you, do and you, and you take a couple of years off. You, you're, you're like, I'm going to chill for a year or so.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I, um, yeah, it's funny. My colleagues on the board, me aside one day before, just before we closed the deal, and they said, You know, it's kind of time for you to get serious about your girlfriend and go, you know, live your life somewhere. And I thought, Oh, and uh, so there was no like, ride along, no, no, ride along or drag package or whatever that's called. No, you, okay, no, no, no. I, I did stay for a year because I'd put most of the company together through okay. the MA program, and so I agreed to stay for a year to kind of help the company figure out where everything was legally and plug things in operationally, And so I kind of, you know, so I spent a year doing that, but, but it, it, it took a lot of time, but it wasn't the 80 hours a week. I was burning before. And I was racing my sailboat one, one week. And one of the guys on the crew kind of put the shot on my girlfriend. I was like, what's going on? And she's like, well, he told me you'll never marry me. And I was like, Oh, Oh. okay. And uh, got off my rear end and did something about it. Well, now uh, how
0: did how did a a landlocked Texas boy from San Antonio learn how to sail? Where would that come
1: from? Well, (laughs) you know, everybody forgets Texas has a thousand miles of coastline. Well, that's true. You're right. Yeah, and (laughs) and and by the way, unless you're a sailor, you wouldn't know this, but it blows twenty knots every day. And and so I grew up. I grew up. Sailing and racing boats when I was young, in uh, in a little a little uh, a place near near Corpus Christi, and it blew okay. every day.
0: Ah, so, gotcha. It, okay, interesting, interesting. Yeah. The girlfriend the girlfriend in New York is that back then? Was that
1: your, is no, that your no, no, no no no? He, my 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 father was more clever than I thought. Uh, no, I was <laughs> I was at a I was at a wedding, and um, and all of a mm. sudden I'm I'm trying to find a friend of mine and and. And his wife says, man, don't look for my friend. Go look at the girl he's talking to. Who's my friend. And, and I stopped dead in my tracks and that was kind of it.
0: Was you, did your dad, <laughs> did your dad plant her there? Was it, was it a plan? No. <laughs>
1: no, no, but uh, okay. he, he does adore her. So, <laughs> uh,
0: okay. All right. All right. So you may, so, so that happened quick. All right. Very, very good. All right. well, what did she do?
1: well other than look after me and my and our three children which is a full-time job she's yep. also she's also in, yeah i'm kind of a handful um, she she's also very involved in philanthropy both here in texas and in new york
0: what's her passion specifically uh ch- you know children or what what's the
1: what's the yeah. you know children and children and making sure that all kids kind of have an even shot when they're young and get going.
0: Okay. Very good.
1: All right. Very good. So you're uh, getting your shit
0: together, so to speak, after you sell the company up there in New York, uh, do you decide to move back? Do you get a call from a friend at Argo? What happens?
1: So, <laughs> so a little bit of a lot the above. So, so Titan was actually in Texas. And so, so I left New York to come back to Texas to, to, to take public and build up the company. So afterwards, you know, I wanted to go back to being what I originally wanted to do, which was be an entrepreneur. So remember I was only practicing law in New York because I was trying to pay my dues. And so I was like, okay, check, not going to go do that again. Uh, Already run an insurance company, check, don't need to do that again. And so, you know, I'm now in my early thirties and remember when you were in your early thirties and you were sure you knew everything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Damn. Okay. So I'm just like that in my early thirties and, and I decide that I'm going to become a venture capitalist. Remember this is, so this is in the late nineties, right? So this is at, at the beginning of the height of the dot-com bubble. And so I start a venture firm with one other guy and, and investment number two happened to be the predecessor to Argo, uh, which at the time was called Argonaut Group, uh, and it was an insurance group that had been spun out of Teledyne. And I was, and and a friend of mine, you know, said, did I get a phone call? Yeah, a friend of mine called me. And goes, hey, you need to go look at this company. And to make a long story short, after you know about a year, we we were both. We both kind of invested in the company and both thought this was kind of cool because he also uh, was and still is in the insurance business. And so we both uh, were asked to join the board of this company. And then the board, about a year later, asked me to come run it. And so so I built it up over a 20-year period, and that was long enough. And so a couple of years ago, I went back to venture again. And so but but the investment but but the here was the investment thesis at the time which by the way was true then but it's probably easier to execute today. So my investment thesis was early stage companies need not just financial capital but they need intellectual capital as well. Mm-hmm. And and what I mean by that is when you're most founders who are starting a business for the first time they had a great idea and kind of got it going, but they'd never run a business before because look, how many people have actually owned and run a business? It's a very few number. And so you don't know what you don't know and you're drinking out of a fire hose. And so my investment thesis was, Hey, uh, I can help you build your business uh, if you'd like me to invest in your business. And, and so that's the last couple of years, that's been very successful. Mm -hmm. so Argo did it go public and then you got out Then, what why did you leave Uh, it was already public but very small the market cap was less than 300 million and when I when I retired from the company it was over two and a half billion it was trading at an all-time high
0: congratulations Uh,
1: thank you so uh I, I left for two reasons. One, twenty years is long enough. And <laughs> and and second, uh after 20 years, we we finally attracted the attention of an activist shareholder. And and I probably don't need to say anything more. <laughs> Got it.
0: Understood. Okay, very good. Oh, so now at this point, you probably could retire if you wanted to, but you're like, nah, I'm gonna I'm gonna start. I'm going to start my own VC firm again. Right. So, you, you, and by the way, why Aquila? Why the name?
1: Because when I, well, so Aquila actually started in 98 when I was. Yeah. Right. Dating dating my, my then girlfriend. Okay. And I guess maybe we were engaged by that point. Anyway, um, we both like thought that name was really cool. And so there we go. And like all my race boats are named Tiburon because in, in Spanish, Tiburon is shark and she's, my wife's from Guadalajara and she Uh. thought I needed a more macho name for my race boat than whatever it was at the time. So.
0: (laughs) Okay. So Aquila was an, it was an LLC or or whatever. It was, it was a formed company way back then. That's right. That had that first investment. And then you kind of, you weren't super active with it while you were running Argo.
1: I would make make one or two investments a year on the side. Okay. Okay. And, and, but I, but I didn't take an active role in the portfolio mm-hmm, companies mm-hmm, uh, like I intended to in the beginning and and okay. and like I like I do now. But so I, you know, I, it's like after spending all this time learning all these things, I, the th- I mean I have more energy today than I did ten years ago. Really? And, oh, that's good. and I love what I'm doing. So it, the you th- look the like th- you're. Th- look like you're in pretty good shape, by the way, for,
0: for a guy in his 50s. What do what you on the treadmill every morning? What do you what are you doing? <laughs>
1: um, you know what? To, to be honest, I, I try very hard to exercise every day with my travel schedule. It doesn't happen. Um, but I I find time to exercise probably five times a week and two or three hit it really hard, okay. um, whether it's okay. hiking or skiing or running or you you go into the gym um, I, I try and get my heart rate up uh, at the direction of my doctor several times a week. Very and, good. And it makes well, a difference. Oh, well, I lost your video right there. What happened? Uh,
0: there we go. Yeah. Well, it definitely does make a difference when you're our age. Cause we're roughly the same age. Uh, you got to stay active, man. You can't, you can't just, you can't just sit around. Okay. So give, yeah. now's probably a good time. G- give the listeners like the Aquila elevator pitch the the overview as it stands today go for
1: it yeah so it's what i was talking about a minute ago we really focus on helping early stage companies that that have figured out their product they've figured out their their go to market strategy they've got customer adoption but they they can't they're they're struggling to kind of get past where they are in terms of size because they're organized the same way today that when they started two or three years ago and they're trying to figure out how to scale and get to the next level. Mm-hmm. And, and that's where, that's where we've really been able to help the most. So still pretty early on, right. They've got, do, you know, a dozen customers or dozens of customers, but they've gotten, but they've they got more than one. And now they're trying to figure out, you know, how to go from, a million dollars of revenue to 10 million dollars of revenue do you care what their ebitda
0: number is or net income on a million is do you, do you care oh, none,
1: it- <laughs> none of them are making money right now <laughs> uh, but, but they all but they all have the they all have the potential to and and so but this is an important point right which is are they not making money because they're growing rapidly but they have clear line of sight to either profitability or cash flow neutral. And if they throttled back the capex for growth, they could put it on the bottom line tomorrow. Or are they a company whose cost of acquiring their customer is so high that they're never going to make money over time? Remember, that's what kind of killed all the dot com companies mm-hmm. two decades ago. Mm-hmm. And, and so, business owners that can show me that in terms of describing their business and, and, and then being able to show it to me financially, that's where I get excited and want to be helpful. And so. Do you, do you expect a
0: family owned lifestyle business that is doing $2 million? They've been forcing it to break even for tax reasons. So they, they shove a bunch of shit in the expenses as much as they can. Cause they're not, they don't care about EBITDA. Do you find that, um, do you find that that they they just don't know how to shift from lifestyle to quote growth and sell and then you can help them do that or you already expect them to be in the mindset of growth and scale?
1: Well I, I haven't I haven't invested in any company that's like what you described, nor nor have I looked at any and I understand what you're talking about, but these are all companies where people have come up with amazing ideas that are transformational for what's going on in the economy right now. Okay. Like one company is an AI company that's that is primarily voice. And and so think large mega call centers for airlines. Those okay. are their biggest clients at the moment. Or uh, another company is a software company that we've transformed into a hospitality platform. in fact if you if you go out at night in Austin um, and you are trying to figure out where to go where you go out and open up a tab, chances are you're gonna be using our technology and chances are you're gonna you're gonna open up our app it's called Union and I think that, I think now we've got like the majority of people that go out at night on our system somewhere, and so that's hundreds of thousands of people, and we've got hundreds of thousands of users in New York City mm-hmm. and half a dozen other cities are, are growing pretty quickly. So the, the businesses that I'm that I, that we've gotten involved in, they're figuring out how to scale massively over a relatively short period of time, meaning years not. Not decades. I did so see. I did see CPG though. I'm, I'm sorry. I did see CPG
0: though uh, mentioned in the, in. The- yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah, that's true. But ironically, I think some of the more profitable investments I've made have been in in consumer products like you know, the fastest growing part of the of the alcohol industry right now is what they call ready to drink mm-hmm. drinks. Mm-hmm. You know, pop the pop the top and off you go. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we've invested in a company called Canteen Vodka in Austin, which oh. was, which was the first real vodka soda drink on the market. People think that. of white, people think of white claw, but white claws actually not real vodka. It's, it's a, it's a, uh, malt and mm. so, and mm. it tastes like that. Right. And so we're, we're not the only vodka soda in the can now, but, but we were, we were the first. By the way, would and, you invest? Would you invest on in a rum ready to drink company? Well, I, I might look at a lot of ready to drink companies because they're. Uh, I, I have they're one. I have market. one. Okay, well, that market's exploding. All right, I have a friend uh, that
0: sits on our advisory board here at Ryder Flex that uh, has a rum ready to drink uh, startup going on. I don't know if he's in a cash raise, but anyway, side topic, and I'll 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 uh, talk to you afterwards. But uh, okay, very good. Uh, do you have, are there pre besides life changing ideas and technology? Is it, um, what was it, a million to, to 10 million? Is that right, your roughly rough target on revenue?
1: Yeah, well, what I was saying was, I, I think that we're really good at helping businesses grow their revenue from a million to 10 million. Finally, okay. we're also good at going from 10 million to 100 million as well. Okay, okay, uh, that's a whole different mindset and a whole different playbook. Mm-hmm. And and so, depending on on your size and what your goals are, we may or may not have a playbook to help you get there. But chances are, we do. Uh, and typically, do you
0: invest in a controlling interest, or what percentage do you like to grab when you invest?
1: No, we we want to take a big enough a big enough position that that we either have a board seat or we're in the boardroom or that the management team and the other investors think that we bring something to the table. We don't have a controlling position in, in any of the things that we do, but we have a meaningful position. So in smaller businesses, we, you know, our check size is hundreds of thousands of dollars. And as the companies grow, then our check sizes grow commensurately and and we'll write million dollar checks or two million dollar okay. checks.
0: Okay, is it still just you and your partner, and your your funds from you and him, or are you raising? Or, or well, so,
1: you... So he, he exited long ago, and I have some other partners that have joined joined since.
0: Okay, very good. All right, sounds good. I appreciate you sharing all of that with me. By the way, and I want to ask you uh, some some questions uh, aside from Akilah, but for for everybody listening to the show, akilacapitalpartners.com, dot or you can find. Mark Watson, Mark E. Watson, the on LinkedIn, if you want to connect with him there as well. Um, let me ask you, so I know we could do a whole show on, these, on each of these next several questions, but for this episode, maybe two or three quick bullet points. Biggest uh, pieces of advice or maybe top three pieces of advice you would give to an aspiring entrepreneur that is about to pitch you? Uh, somebody that's coming to meet you and pitch you. What, do you what do you want to tell that listener right now?
1: Some of this will sound sound obvious, but it's worth saying anyway. Uh, number one, be passionate about your business oh, Mark Well, oh, Mark, can you hear me? Yeah, sorry Well oh,
0: no no, no I'm gonna make a note here for Brianna so she can edit that real quick and then I'm going to ask okay.
1: You to ask you. Yeah, go know. ahead.
0: Uh, Mark, real quick. Um, yeah. Key pieces of advice for aspiring entrepreneurs with a good idea. They're doing about a million dollars, $2 million, whatever. They, they're coming to pitch you because they're trying to raise cash. What do you want to tell them right now?
1: Uh, first, be passionate about your business. I realize that's say, stating the obvious, right? But be able to, Show it in how you spend your time, not just how you talk about it. Mm. Second, be really, really, really focused on who your customer is and what it is that they really want and need. So many businesses get started because they've built an amazing new product that no one wants to buy. Trust me, I've started some of those and I've invested in some of those. So. focus on the customer not the product. Okay? Mm, that's a good one. Yeah. Okay, but but then now now the, but but then answer number 3 is going to be somewhat contradictory, which is make sure that the product that you do offer is amazing and the service, let me say it again, the service that supports that product is amazing as well because at the end of the day that's how you're going to keep your customer. Mm. If you can't delight them through excellent service, you're going to lose your customer.
0: Good stuff. How about this? I see this a lot because as a recruiting firm, that's our day job right at Rider Flex. And so we see this. Right. And and then I I ran a couple of smaller companies myself and I have a bunch of friends that own businesses. I see this all the time. Uh, Original founders that are the CEOs that don't know when to get out of the way. They don't. They don't know it. They don't. They don't want to get out of the way. It's their baby. Whatever. They know it all because they, they got it to two million dollars. So they think they're the smartest person on the planet. All of a sudden, <laughs> uh, what would you say to, or what advice would you give to a CEO listening on on when to know when when, when do you know that it's time to move out of the way? I guess that's the question.
1: Well, you know, that that's really hard. You've heard the expression, lead, follow, or get the hell out of the way. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of truth to that. But here, here's the here's the reality. For businesses that are growing quickly, what happens almost always is that the business outgrows the founder and or the original team. Yes. And that's where we come in. Not to run the thing, but to help the founder founder and the original founding team think through what their strengths and weaknesses are and how to bring in other people to support that. Mm -hmm. When I was building my company and it was growing very quickly, I was fortunate uh, to have been introduced to one of the real business gurus, um, a man named Ram Charan. Ram is from India, India he went to the harvard business school he coached at the harvard business school but he's most well known either for you know a dozen books that he's written the most popular is called and the first one is called execution that he wrote with larry bossetti but he's also well known because he was larry bossetti's boss's advisor jack welch at ge i see and, and so a lot of the things that have come out of GE came from Ram Charon. And, and he said to me, and again, this is going back 20 years now. He said, you realize that you have to reinvent your company every three or four years or you're going to get left behind. And I said, mm-hmm. yeah, I got that. He goes, mm-hmm. Oh, good. Okay. He said, <laughs> well, do you also realize that if you don't reinvent yourself every three or four years, you're going to get left behind. Mm-hmm. And I said, yeah, I think I get that. And so 20 years later, he still advises me on occasion and we still talk about that story. But it's true, right? It, the reality is that the companies that are growing quickly almost always grow faster than the team supporting the company at that moment in time. Yes. And sometimes you have the luxury of replacing one role at a time. But in other instances where you're really going through hyper growth, you may have to replace half the team every two years mm-hmm. because you've got to bring in new, new and different skills. And, and in the small business, you know, you've heard the expression, jack of all trades, master of none, you know, or, well, we don't have titles in our company right now. We all yeah. just work <laughs> together, right? Well, that's what you need. OK, but then as the company gets bigger, then you've got to bring in more domain expertise. Yes. Now, let me, now let, me give you, let me give you the corollary to that. Imagine you're a small company growing quickly and people do have to roll their sleeves up and do work themselves. They can't just manage the work of others. And then you parachute in a big company person into that environment that's ridden up the corporate escalator and they're accustomed to presiding and getting paid. And for presiding, and then all of a sudden, you go, Hey, man, we got to get this done. And they're like, I know I don't do that. I'm like, What do you mean you don't do that? No, 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 that's what I have a staff for. And I'm like, There is no staff, it's you. (laughs) And every time you know, I watch big company people come into smaller environments, they fail because they have all this knowledge, but they don't know how to apply it because they haven't actually done any work in years. And I don't mean that to be pejorative, right? I'm just saying that. Skills are very different at different. The skills requisite for a business change as the company evolves, and the companies that the 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 founders or CEOs or boards of directors of those businesses that figure out how to keep the organizational structure or the evolution of the organizational structure moving at the same pace of the growth of the company. Those are the ones who win. Yes, you can move too quickly yes. or you can move too slowly. But if you get the cadence right, you have a chance to create real sustainable value.
0: Couldn't agree more. And you're so right about the big company person going into small company. As a as a recruiting firm, I rarely will I try and move a 30-year executive from Coca-Cola into a startup, you know, for example. I just, it just, I've, it. it chances of it working are slim, slim. I'm not saying it never does, but it's hard that yeah, very hard. and speaking of that good segue, you've hired interviewed thousands. I mean, you know, you've been leading people your whole life. Um, what is your secret sauce to interviewing somebody? What, what is Mark's secret sauce to, to pick on the right person?
1: Having a process that leads to an outcome that allows you to really know the person that you're hiring, not just their skill sets, but what, what wire, how they're wired, what makes them tick, what mm-hmm. they're really passionate and motivated about, and figuring out whether that's a fit with your culture or not. And and so often people look great on paper and and they can show well in the interview. And then after the first week, you're like, oh, no, how did I miss that? (laughs) And and, you know, that's that's it's a whole long discussion. But but I I, again, to kind of pull pages out of my playbook uh, early on uh, in my career, I was at a program put on by YPO, Young Presidents Organization, and, mm-hmm. and the speaker was talking about selection. And, and his name was Dr. Jerry Bell, and he has a program at the University of North Carolina called the Bell Leadership Institute. So I learned a lot about selection with him. And then somebody started talking about this book called Top Grading. Okay? Well, I don't know if you ever heard of Top Grading, but the guy who mm-hmm. wrote it's name is Brad Smart. And so that's how he branded his selection process. And by the way, guess who his main client was in his heyday? Jack <laughs> Welch at GE. This wow. is coincidental, but, you know, there's the theme here, right? And so, <clears throat> you know, I, Brad has a very methodical process that if you follow it, you're far more likely to get to the right outcome. But it means spending a lot of time on the front end making sure you really know who you're hiring instead of, you know, the the one, you know, you, you show up the first time and you look at somebody's resume and you go, that's nice. Okay, meet the guys down the hall and then you caucus with the guys down the hall. And that's, you know, and that's, that that's great guy. Yeah, you know, and you're like, oh, right. Okay, and so, in, and what both of them taught me was take the time to get to know the person. And there's different techniques to do that. But at the end of the day, get to know who the person really is and what makes them tick, and then figure out if they're really as motivated as you in the company or not. Okay, mm-hmm. and then that's and that gets me to the second thing, which I think is really really important. If you're passionate about your business and you're trying to take it to the next level, and/or you're serious about delighting your customers, you have to make sure that when your employees come to work that's the most important thing and that's really really hard to find today
0: mm, it because is
1: because in this generation of snowflakes that that doesn't come first right, right you know right. peace yep. love intergalactic utopia working 3 days a week <laughs> you know how can you be passionate about your customers if you're not there to serve them and so there's this. And so you've really got to make sure that the people that you hire are just as aligned with you about delighting the customer, or are they just doing it as a job so that they can then do something else? By the way, there's nothing wrong with that, right? But if you're, but if you're passionate about your business and you want your employees to be, then that's, you've really got to select for that in the beginning. And so often, People are just desperate to fill seats, and it ends up backfiring, yes. Um, be, because you you end up with people that aren't as aligned with you in in where you're going. I mean, I was being a bit cheeky a second ago, but actually, probably factually correct. Oh, te- definitely. And, and so it's just hard to get that alignment today. Um, mm, it is, it when, it yeah, I mean, I I think that a lot of people forget that we're in the business to serve our clients. The business isn't in business to serve our employees. Oh, good one. Great. You know, I just want to. Wanna... I'm going to get canceled for that, by the way. I said that one day. And right. I, I was going to get canceled <laughs> for saying that. But I said, no, no, you don't understand. Then you don't understand. We, yeah. yeah, The Constitution called free speech. And they're like, well, you can say anything you want, but the media companies don't pay attention to that.
0: <laughs> I want to ask you three things here on the, what you just said. Great stuff, by the way. First, um, I am in full agreement that you have to hire people for a culture fit, especially in small to mid-sized companies. I think it's ultra critical. You know, for the listeners, I just want to you know really highlight what Mark said. It, I, it doesn't matter if the skill set is one thing, right? The skill set gets them in the door to speak with you if they're if they have the right, right experience and right. they can do the job. But then you got to make sure that they match the culture. And that the people are going to get along and play nice together in the sandbox, or it's not going to work. And I, I've had people on the podcast that have said, "Oh, culture doesn't matter. We just just be." I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, I'm like uh, "Yeah, it does. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh,
0: it really does." Um, the other thing I wanted to say really quick is, you know, I'm all for downtime. Sure, I'm, and I live in Colorado, and I, I like to get in my jeep and go to the mountains on weekends and and, and do my thing. But let me tell you that I'm always telling people that does not happen unless somebody is busting their ass working really hard when they're supposed to to allow that time off. And, yeah, we got some people now with this attitude like money is just going to fall out of the sky and 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 everybody just gets. No, it doesn't work that way. And I have told my team this the same way. I'm like, culture is great. We want to have fun. I want it to be a fun, casual culture. We want to have you know, you want to do the donuts in the con- conference room and all these little cool things. That's all great as long as we're making money and serving the customer. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just getting passionate. You got me wound up. Yeah,
1: no, no, uh, you're right. And, and you know, I was just, I, I it's, when I was thinking about culture a minute ago. I I will confess that early on, I was, I didn't appreciate culture as much as I do today. And somebody was asking me early and early in my career you know, well, what do you think it takes to be a successful CEO? And I'm talking about being financially literate and being able to communicate and understanding operations. And, and they said, well, you know, well, what about like vision and culture? And I'm like, well, you know, if you got all the, and remember it's an insurance company, right? I'm like, come on, how hard this can this be? And, and you know, it's funny. I look back over time and what actually matters the most is having a vision, knowing where you want to go, being able to clearly articulate where it is that you're going, why you're going there, and then talk about how you're going to get there once people understand, you know, what the goal is. And, and the second thing is, is culture, right? You know, we're all together, you know, in the office more than we are at home. And so right. it's really, really important that we all click yeah, I couldn't agree more. I want to ask you something now, as we
0: get towards wrap up here, because you you touched on it already. So I'm going to go down this this path just for a second, because it's really um, on my mind a lot lately, especially for for a guy who has a podcast, and that is this whole cancel culture censorship stuff. Um, I am personally i'm I'm really concerned about the the power of some of the social media platforms including Google to just yep. to just turn people off. I I'm really mark like I, I'm really I'm really concerned about it. And I and I heard I had a guy on the podcast the other day and he said yeah, I'm not going to say it as well as he did. He said uh, he said as a human species one of the most important things we are ever going to do coming up is deciding how information flows through the internet to human beings, because whoever controls that is in control of everything. And uh, so anyway, I'm super nervous about that. I, it scares me to see people canceled. Um, What are your thoughts on the topic?
1: (laughs) Well, you know, I was mentioning earlier in our discussion about my, my eldest child who's writing this paper at NYU and it's actually on this subject. Mm. And, and so we were, we were talking about how with the Internet today, it makes it so much easier and, uh, to communicate your message to a lot of people. In mm-hmm. fact, you become accessible to millions of people through all the different modes of communication that exist today, mm-hmm. comma, as long as they like what you have to say, period. <laughs> and and so then, by the way, this is a girl who's been educated in the Northeast, you know, in a liberal, liberal school mm-hmm. for high school and now college. And she said, you know, look, I don't necessarily agree with the former president of the United States, mm-hmm. but what I don't understand is how he can get interviewed on somebody's podcast. I saw that. And, and then it gets aired on YouTube and pulled because the owners of YouTube decide <laughs> to pull it. And, how it and, and her 14-year-old brother earlier in the day had said, look, I'm not saying I'm a fan or not of the former president of the United States, but how is it that a former president of the United States cannot have a Twitter account? And, I, I totally agree. Is that and, in, so his point to me was your idea of free speech is bullshit. It doesn't exist anymore because the people that control these pipes determine what you can say or not. Yes. And, uh, and so yeah. my kids, you know, they're really wrestling with this. And, and again, they already told me that if I speak up public, I'll get canceled immediately. So your you podcast know, may not air. I know, right?
0: And by the way, and by the way, for the listeners, it's really important for anybody listening to this, to this segment right here. I I don't give a shit whether you like Trump or don't like Trump or anybody else that has been canceled. It's not a, that's not what it's about. That's not what we're talking about here is you agreeing with a certain person or whether or not you like them. It's the power to do that. I, I saw that the other day. I saw that, that Trump did that interview with those guys. I can't remember the name of that podcast right off the top of my head, but, uh, I saw that and then all of a sudden it got taken down. And I told my wife, I'm like, man, I was like, people, I'm like, this is scary shit right here. This, this, this has me very concerned. I mean, cause you, they can control whatever comes out. And, and I know we're out of time, but the, I, I guess the last thing I would say on it is traditionally as a guy, I grew up in Oklahoma, lived in Texas. And so traditionally I would lean right, so to speak, maybe not, very far i'm more i'm more center than anything but maybe lean just a little bit right so normally i would not vote for government intervention in, into a company i don't want the government telling me what to do with riderflex right
1: right but
0: but we're at a stage now where they have so much control it really is very similar to rockefeller back on the with the oil uh, and several other examples that you could speak to. We're, we're at a point now where there is so much control that, that I think I think something might need to be done. So anyway, I'm just ranting. <laughs> uh, last question. Yeah, you're right. We're, we're going to get canceled. Me and you both will be canceled after this. Um, last question, Mark. I know we're out of time. At this stage in your life, and, and by the way, congrats. Wonderful career. Sounds like a wonderful family. So congrats to you, my friend how would you define your core purpose in life moving forward? Um, Let's separate your wife and kids for a minute. Not not including your immediate family.
1: What is Mark's go forward core purpose from here? So if I just stick to profession, my passion for more than two decades has been building businesses. And, for most of that time, I've been the architect and, and the director, and I'm enjoying helping other people build their businesses and giving them my know-how so that they can do it a lot faster because they're not having to stop and start and learn through, through trial and error. Uh, I'm not saying we get it right every time, but but we've had some we've had some pretty big wins in the last couple of years. And, you know, it's really fun. I, I, I'll give you an I don't know if this is an analogy or not, maybe it's a story, but uh, I get as much satisfaction out of watching these young teams just crush it and figure things out on their own with just a little nudging for me. And it's like last week I was skiing with my son and we were skiing some very difficult technical terrain and I was following him and the way he went down this bump run, I just, I couldn't believe it that the, the line that he took and the style that he took going through there, I, I was on the one hand, a little jealous and on the other hand, a very proud father and I got as much satisfaction out of seeing him crush that run as if I'd done it myself Mm -hmm. and it's the same in work now I'm having as much fun watching these young teams by the way they're not all young most of them are just crush it and it's fun Mark thank you so much for
0: sharing your story and being on the Rider Flex podcast I really appreciate it
1: well thanks for having me Steve